Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini, lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit. So, here we go. Uh, And as a sort of side note, uh, I have heard from a couple of people that the audio on these podcasts is a bit low. Uh, I think that is mostly just an effect of some of the settings I have on my microphone, so I've tweaked those a little bit. Um, If it's still causing problems, let me know. Uh, But if not, hopefully I have fixed it. So, this week we're going to talk about 2 Chronicles a bit, and we're going to talk about Corinthians a bit, because you will start to read uh, 1 Corinthians this week. Uh, But first, let's talk about some of the stuff we are reading in 2 Chronicles. You're reading the story of King Hezekiah. Now, I've talked about Hezekiah a bit already because, of course, he's, he's mentioned in Second um, Kings earlier in the Bible. And, of course, that's from a different point of view, but the story is largely the same. And the reason I mention it is because uh, Hezekiah has one of the, the relatively rare moments in the Bible where we actually have sources external to the Bible that confirm the events in the story, uh, which is really interesting. Now, just because there are stories in the Bible that are not confirmed by sources outside the Bible doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that a lot of these stories happened a long time ago, and that just means that the the Whatever documents may have existed either haven't been found or or have just been lost forever. Um, and, of course, some of them really just weren't written down anywhere else outside the Bible. It doesn't mean they're untrustworthy, although some people may try and say that. Um, it means that the Bible is just as trustworthy as any other text that we have that dates from these periods. Actually, it's probably more trustworthy because there are more copies of it dating back to very old dates. Now, we treat all these other ancient sources as reliable. We should treat the Bible the same way. So, King Hezekiah, he initiates this this sort of series of sweeping religious reforms across the kingdom of Judah. This is after the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have split, and actually it's after the northern kingdom has ceased to exist. The northern kingdom has been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. The people who live there have been forcibly relocated all across the empire, which means that they have been scattered into what we would call modern-day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, northern Iraq, uh, probably up into Turkey and the Caucasus, and maybe even uh, as far away as some parts of Iran and Arabia and parts of Egypt. Assyria had a, a lot of territory that they ruled over. Uh, So we're we're talking about a wide, this is why they're called the Lost Tribes of Israel, by the way, because they're scattered and no one really knows where they all went. Some of them evidently were left behind in the city of Samaria, because by the time of of Jesus' life, the people in Samaria, the Samaritans, right, who are sort of the, the ancient enemies of the Jewish people, uh, in, in that story, there's some animosity there, and the implica- there, there's 
sort of two schools of thought about that. Some people say the Samaritans are descended from the people who the Assyrians left in place after they conquered the northern kingdom. And so they still worship there. They still try and follow the ancient customs of Judaism there. Uh, other people say that they are the people who were left behind by the Babylonians after that exile. Either way, um, either way, there's tension there that dates back to this day and age we're talking about in Chronicles. Uh, so the Assyrians have conquered the northern kingdom. All that stuff is Judah. So imagine, imagine this little tiny dot of territory that includes the city of Jerusalem and a few outlying areas. It's a very small territory. But it is still a kingdom, but it is a vassal kingdom. The Assyrians effectively allow it to exist because they they send money to the king of Assyria. They basically pay him off. And Hezekiah, in the midst of all this, initiates these sweeping religious reforms. They tear down altars to pagan gods. Um, but But one of the interesting things is that these religious reforms demonstrate just how bad things have gotten because they they literally have to postpone the celebration of the Passover by a month because they can't find enough priests in the whole kingdom. There aren't enough priests. And so they postpone Passover. And that's a big deal. Passover is the holiday. I don't I don't know if this is still as true for Jews living in the modern world, but certainly for Jews living in this day and age, when we talk about Passover, this is the single most important holiday because this is the holiday from which their entire identity as a people comes. They are the people who God freed from slavery in Egypt. That's what Passover celebrates. This is what defines them as a people, and they can't celebrate it. They have to delay it by a month because there aren't enough priests in the kingdom. That's how bad it has gotten. So Hezekiah's reforms are massive, and they they are incredible. And it's these reforms that are going to save Israel from the Assyrian invasion, right? Assyria is going to invade the kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah will call out to God for help, and God will send his angels to strike at the Assyrian army, and they return home. And what happens next is incredible. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, returns home, and he's assassinated by his sons. And after that, his sons will, will drag the empire down into civil war as they squabble over who will get the throne. And it's not long after that that an alliance of Babylon and the Medes, who are a people who live in, in modern-day Iran, and other people sort of living on the fringes of the Assyrian Empire will unite to destroy the Assyrian Empire and overthrow them. In other words, this invasion of Judah and, and Sennacherib's defeat in Judah marks the end of the dominance of the Assyrian Empire. They no longer exist 
as a superpower after this moment. It's absolutely incredible. And it's all documented outside of the Bible. There's even, before he's killed by his son, Sennacherib has has the opportunity to write down the events of, of the invasion. And he references his siege of the city of Jerusalem. He says, I held Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage. Now, of course, he doesn't admit his defeat and his return home. Because why would he? That's not how ancient kings liked to write. Right? If they were still alive, they weren't going to write that they got defeated. And so historians and archaeologists all agree that Sennacherib invades Judah, that he returns home under circumstances that aren't quite clear, by the way. Historians and archaeologists don't really know, or at least they say they don't know, why Sennacherib didn't actually end up breaking down the walls of Jerusalem and conquering it. There's no real indication of what happened in the Assyrian records. And historians don't like to agree with the Bible when it says that God does things like sending angels to smite the Assyrian army. So they just sort of leave it blank. But they agree he returns home, and they agree that not long after that, his sons kill him, and that the Assyrian Empire never again has the kind of power that it had when Sennacherib was king. We, however, as Christians and people who are reading the Bible, can interpret it this way. Sennacherib invaded the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah, having undergone these religious reforms, was in God's favor. And so God protected them. God defeated the Assyrian Empire. And more than that, God annihilated the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire never again had power, and it was just a very short while after this that the Assyrian Empire is ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. In fact, you're going to read this week about King Josiah, who is only a couple of generations younger than Hezekiah. And by the time we get to Josiah, he is helping the Babylonians to finish off the Assyrian Empire. That's actually how he dies. He dies in battle. Uh, trying to stop the Egyptians from linking up with what's left of the Assyrian army to oppose the Babylonians. So things change rapidly. And you see, here's why this is all important. This is exactly how God tends to work in the world. We, we would like to think that if God is at work in the world, if God is shaping events, if God is propping up some nations and dealing out justice to others, we would like to think we'd see massive signs and wonders and miracles or plagues being sent on the evil people. But the reality is that God usually works in ways that people can easily dismiss with explanations that seem perfectly rational. I don't really doubt I don't really doubt that um, God had a hand in the downfall of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan at the end of World War II. I don't really doubt that God had a hand in the defeat of the Confederacy in the American Civil War. They were an, an evil state that, that existed for the sole purpose of maintaining the institution of slavery, and God defeated them. Right? We can cite hundreds of other examples. I don't doubt that God will 
will eventually take down Vladimir Putin and Russia. I don't doubt that God will eventually take down the Chinese Communist Party, which is one of the most evil and vile regimes in the world. But in all likelihood, there are going to be perfectly rational economic or political or military reasons we could all use to explain those events away. We can look at our own civil war and say that, of course, the Confederacy lost. They never had the population or the industrial capacity to stand up to to the Union armies. But that's not really a, a satisfying explanation. We can say the same thing about World War II. But when you start digging into the nitty-gritty, the details of these things, there are all kinds of, of events that had to play out just right in order for good to triumph. God is at work in the world. And we will see that throughout our lives. But only those with the insight to discern God's will are going to notice God's activity. That's how it's always been. You'll see later in in the Bible that the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And again, there are lots of there's lots of historical evidence for that. We know it happened. We know that that the Persian Empire did indeed treat the Jewish people quite well. But most historians aren't exactly going to agree with the idea that God blessed the Persian Empire because they treated God's people well. Or that God used the Persians to bring his justice on the Babylonians for their cruelty. Or that God used the Babylonians to bring his justice on the Assyrians. And and this, by the way, raises another really interesting point, which is that um, God does not, just because a, a nation or a people are used to bring God's justice about in the world, doesn't mean that they are God's chosen people. God uses the Assyrians to punish the northern kingdom of Assyria. God uses the Babylonians to punish the Assyrians. God uses the Persians to punish the Babylonians. None of them were his people. If you want to really dive into the history of World War II, and and I only use this because it's one of the only examples where I think most people would agree there was a very clear right and wrong side of that war, And it's pretty clear that good triumphed over evil in that war. And yet, and yet, you can't say that the Allies were all good and righteousness throughout the entirety of the war. For one thing, one of the Allied nations was the Soviet Union, which was a regime just as evil in many ways as the Nazis. And if you want to dive into it, um, the the racism of the UK and the US had a lot to do with not only why Japan started a war in the first place, but also why they were so successful for the first two or three years. Because it was always assumed by the British and American leadership that the Japanese, a non-white nation, could never possibly do all the things that they ended up doing. 
So even if we can all agree that it was clearly a good thing that Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were defeated, God used people who were imperfect and flawed and evil in their own ways to achieve his purposes in the world. This is how it always goes. God has his own purposes he wants to achieve. And he's going to get them done. And he's going to use whoever is available to do it. And and this may not sound like it, but it's actually a very hopeful message because it means it means that Christians do not have to be politically or socially very powerful. God will still do what God is going to do. God can and will use anybody. We don't have to worry about how the world is going to turn out because we can trust that God is working in the world today to achieve his purposes. And nobody can stand in his way. I find that that is something I have to remind myself of often these days. Because the news can seem so bleak, but the reality is God is at work. God is going to achieve his purposes. And nothing is going to stop him. Thanks be to God. Now I'm going to move on now. I'm going to give you um, I'm going to give you a bit of an intro to Corinthians. Corinthians is um, well, First Corinthians. It's one of those letters. It's got like a, a couple of chapters that everyone quotes all the time, um, and people often ignore the rest of it. But there's a lot of good stuff going on in in the letter to the Corinthians, and so I'm going to give you some background. The city of Corinth, if you can, if you can picture a, a map of Greece in your head, you've got on the sort of southwest portion this this weird shaped peninsula that looks kind of like a hand. That's called the Peloponnese, and there's a little tiny strip of land connecting that to mainland Greece. And Corinth is on that little strip of land. It's still there today, by the way. Um, and and. There's a canal in that strip of land connecting one side of the ocean to the other. It connects the uh, Aegean Sea to the Adriatic. And in the ancient world, ships did not sail on the open ocean if they could avoid it. They stuck close to the shoreline because, generally speaking, you you didn't spend the night on a ship at sea. You would always pull to shore, and actually boats were very lightweight then, you would haul the entire ship up on land at night to sleep. Um, This is why, for instance, you don't have stories about Romans dispatching expeditions to the New World. People just did not sail across the open ocean back then. So the city of Corinth has this canal that connects the Adriatic and the Aegean, and that makes it hugely important because otherwise you've got to sail all the way around Greece to get where you're going if you're trying to get from one side of the empire to the other. That canal shaves off several days, if not a full week, off your trip if you're trying to get from one end of the empire to the other. So the city of Corinth becomes extremely economically important. Even, In fact, even before the canal is dug, 
um, you still had Corinth in the middle of that of that strip of land with a port on either side, and the boats were light enough that people would just pick up the boat on one side and carry it to the other. So it's one of the most important port cities in the Roman Empire. It's massively wealthy. It's, it's this incredible melting pot where people from all over the known world live. So when Paul talks in this letter, by the way, about speaking in tongues, he's literally referring quite possibly to people just speaking in the languages that they're most used to and not in, in one of the languages that they all know. Uh, because there would have been dozens of languages being spoken in the city of Corinth. Um, and, and Corinth as a city has this reputation for loose women, free-flowing booze, and a great nightlife. You can think of it very much like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, except that all the things that earned Sin City its nickname here are actually part of the religions of the city of Corinth. So they're not sins in their eyes. Um, and, and this reputation, by the way, predates the Roman Empire. In fact, there was a phrase in ancient Greek. Um, it, it translates as something like, you know, to, and this is going to get kind of vulgar, um, but it was, you know, to to have sex like a Corinthian was a, a phrase in in Greece. And it, it was basically a very vulgar way of saying, of, of talking about sex, because it was assumed that Corinthians were all promiscuous and loose and very, very good at, at having sex. Um, so I guess I should have warned you if you have children listening to you know, cover their ears at that point. Um, but that gives you an idea of what the culture of Corinth is like because those those that reputation was well-earned. The primary religion practiced in the city of Corinth uh, was the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. And... The worship of Aphrodite involves uh, professional prostitutes in the temple, and I'll leave it at that. And so the, the Corinthian Christians are having a hard time adjusting to the Christian way of life. They aren't being faithful in their marriages. They're still seeking out prostitutes. They're still being promiscuous. When they gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they're each bringing their own food and wine, and they're refusing to share, which means that the rich Christians are getting drunk and stuffing themselves while the poor Christians are going hungry and, and having to watch that. Um, they have, in other words, a lot to learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And on top of all of this, they are divided internally because you've got some in the church who are claiming to be followers of Paul and then others who are claiming to be following a different teacher named Apollos, who we don't have any letters from him, uh, or at least we don't think we do, there are some people who think Apollos is probably the one who wrote the letter uh, that we call Hebrews, and there's good reason to think that. Um, but we don't know much about Apollos, except he was another teacher around the time as Paul, same time as Paul, traveling to many of the same places as Paul. Um, and we also know that Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with Apollos. In fact, Paul seems to think that he and Apollos are teaching the same thing, and he's very confused as to why these Corinthians are divided about it and what they could possibly be seeing that's different in their two teachings. So he's he's got a lot to deal with, which is why that the, the two letters that we have that Paul wrote to the city of Corinth, and there is, by the way, a third letter we don't have. He wrote at least three of them. We just don't have the third one. Um, the third one was the middle one, by the way. He wrote the third one in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We just never have a copy of it. Um, but, but Paul's letters to Corinth are some of his most critical. The only one that's more critical is the one he wrote to Galatians. 
um, because there is a lot to deal with in Corinth, and they have a lot to learn. And for us, I think we should pay attention because there are many things about the culture of the city of Corinth that are not very different from our own culture. We're different in in the way our culture approaches some of them, but things like promiscuity and uh, binge drinking and, and a desire for pleasure above all else, those are still very common in our world. And Christians still struggle with that now. The things the Corinthians are struggling with are the things most American Christians struggle with, too. So this letter is extremely valuable because Paul is speaking almost directly to us. So as we read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, pay close attention to what he's teaching them because he's teaching it to you as well. That's all we've got for you this week, my friends. As always, if you have any questions you'd like answered in this podcast, you can email them to me at forest.divinity at asburycc.org, or you can just ask them to me in person. We'll see you next week.